have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there should be a blue one, and in those Bibles will be on page 320. I hope you enjoyed a break last Sunday from the, the heaviness of Ecclesiastes as our guest, Don Whitney, showed us Christ in Revelation, and many of you came to the uh, intensive and enjoyed that, so thank you for that. We uh, ordered more of uh, Dr. Whitney's books, and so I know there was interest in some of the resources that he has. Those are uh, now in the back at the bookstall, maybe after the gathering. You can check that out if you want. But his teaching that was especially helpful, I think, to everybody was um, on how to pray the Bible, and he's written an excellent book on that, and it's back there just at cost, so $10 to recoup what we spent. So if you're interested in that, I encourage you to buy two and walk somebody through it with you as you uh, seek to learn. And uh, we recorded his, um, his intensive, so I hope in the next week or so we'll be able to put up those videos on YouTube for those of you who weren't able to make it or just want to check it out again. But today we'll be in um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 8, and going all the way through to chapter 6, verse 9. This large section obviously covers a lot of ground, but it really contains one central theme that I hope we'll hear and heed as a family today. Um, all day, every day, you and I are being sold an uh, idea. This idea fills uh, YouTube. It's plastered on billboards. It's in every single break of every single TV show. It's inescapable in sports. Magazines proclaim it, schools cultivate it, social media gets paid through it, and stores depend on it. From our first conscious moment until our last dying breath, this idea permeates every nook and cranny of our lives. Are you ready for it? One of you is. Excellent. <laughs> Here's the idea. Your next purchase will provide durable delight. Your next purchase will provide durable delight. If you just buy that one more thing, then that purchase will finally be the one that really settles it for you and gives you lasting happiness. Now, of course, the idea isn't actually proclaimed exactly that way, but can you see how that is, is everywhere around us? It might be a little bit easier to think about how it works in your own mind. Maybe it goes something like this. I wish I had the new iPhone. It does so much more than mine. I mean, yes, I got the 12, but the 13, that would be amazing. Actually, I don't just wish I had it, I need it. I mean, the battery life on mine is terrible, and the 13, it lasts a lot longer. So, uh, I just got to have it. And, and the camera, I mean, honey, I'll get better pictures of the kids. <laughs> just got to have it. And now that I think about it, I don't just want it, I don't just need it, I deserve it. I mean, I, I work with Cindy, Cindy has it, and I work way harder than she does. So I'm going to get it. I'm going to go get it today because that phone is going to make me happy. Does that sound familiar? 
That's the way our minds will naturally work if we let them go their own direction. Because by nature, we are built to absorb this message that fills the airways all around us. It is the message that the next purchase will be the one that provides durable delight. The problem, of course, is that it's simply not true. It's not true. The idea is a lie. Every single one of us has made a purchase, brought it home full of glee, and quickly found ourselves contemplating the next one. Right? Hasn't this happened to you? We tend to think that the problem is with whatever we bought, rather than understanding that the problem is the mindset, that materialism cannot provide meaning. One of the preachers I enjoy listening to the most right now is uh, a man named Alistair Begg. And he said this, if there is anything worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. I think that is very, very true. We've all felt the emptiness after a purchase let us down. Now, this kind of sermon, I think, is not the, the kind that needs a heavy, double, triple scoop of guilt. We're all well acquainted with what it feels like to get sucked into this. And we feel, even as the topic comes up and we recognize something of the folly of it, a sense of how foolish it is. And so my hope this morning is that rather than feeling more guilt, that what we'd actually see is a way out. That we'd come to understand how it is that we're so susceptible to this, and that we'd find a path forward through God's Word. Ecclesiastes has much to teach about the vanity of seeking significance, meaning, and fulfillment through what we own, or for some of us, it's rather through how much we save. But either way, it's the same root issue. And the lessons Ecclesiastes teach us are perhaps no more powerful than the passage we're in this morning. And I pray that the Lord will give us fresh insight into how we can live less materialistic lives and more full of joy. And so if you would, let's start in verse 8 of chapter 5, and you're going to notice right off the bat that it starts in a rather surprising way. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now the preacher of Ecclesiastes launches into his teaching on wealth by addressing the topic of poverty. So the question we need to ask ourselves right off the bat is why? Why does he start that way? What do the poor have to do with the pursuit of wealth? Well, it turns out quite a bit. You see, verse 8 instructs us that if we see the poor being oppressed and treated unjustly, we shouldn't be surprised. Now, that's not a, a statement of approval of their mistreatment. 
nor is it meant to be something that we would be indifferent to. Rather, it's merely a statement of fact. It's saying, this is so common, it shouldn't surprise us when we see it. Life in a fallen world means that sometimes people will be poor, not because they refuse to work, not because they buy a bunch of stuff they shouldn't be buying, but because sometimes people are poor because they've been taken advantage of. The cause of their poverty is not their own doing. That's the situation raised by these verses. And in the case verses 8 and 9 describe, the unjust treatment of the poor was happening at the hands of the government. You'll notice in verse 8 the, fra- the, the, the words high official. That is a term for some unnamed governmental worker. The oppression of the poor is sometimes caused by or exacerbated by the sinful pursuit of wealth among those in authority. It is a problem that is old, as, that is as old as government itself. Those charged with authority to protect sometimes end up using their power to oppress. Now, this is fascinating when we think about how old this literature is. I mean, this is at least 2,500 years old, written in a society very, very different from ours, where there was a king, not a president, and where that king's authority reigned. The problem in our own day is well known and oft experienced around the world. In fact, there are numerous governments today that are mainly known for their corruption. And many of the poorest countries around the world are poor not because those countries lack the resources not to be, but because the government feasts and gobble up all the resources for themselves. And even outside aid that comes in the form of resources to try and help ends up also getting stolen by those who are corrupt. Governments are designed by God to be a gift for the common good. The book of Romans called the Roman government a servant of God, a minister of God. But sometimes governments become parasitic. They feast on their own. Ecclesiastes says we ought not be surprised when we see this happen. Why? Well, because sinners sin. It's in their nature to do so. And sometimes people in power get more by causing those under them to have less. Friends, people in authority face the same temptations you and I do, the temptations to to greed, the temptations to take advantage of others, the temptations towards selfishness. It's just that they have more opportunity to actually act on those temptations than those of us not in those positions of authority do. 
And so this is a common, common issue. Now, if you are in any position of authority, this is an appropriate place to just say, by implication from this passage, use that authority to help those under you flourish rather than taking advantage of them. Use that position to help their lives be better rather than be worse. And incidentally, I think because of what's happening in society at large, we should take a moment to sort of pause here from Ecclesiastes just to make a couple comments about the issue of authority in general. Today we are inundated with various forms of something called critical theory. And for the vast majority of us, we had never heard that term until the last 12 or 18 months. But the concept, the idea, has been all around us for some time. Frankly, if you're reading best-selling nonfiction books written in the last few years, if you're consuming popular media, if you have non-Christian friends and actually have meaningful conversations with them, if you attend a public school, or most definitely if you attend a public university, then you are being baptized by critical thought. It is everywhere. Critical theory's answer to things like corruption and oppression is to call for the complete abolition of authority. The view is that if government is corrupt, then we need to do away with government. If police can become corrupt, then we need to get rid of police. Functionally, though, the way critical theory actually works out is that it says those who are in power must switch places with those who are not. Do you see that? It, you cannot have a society in which there is no authority structure. That is impossible. So the eradication of whoever's in authority will only end up replacing that authority with somebody else. You can't actually do away with it. It doesn't work. So the logical fallacy of this aside, let me just say that God's answer to authority that has been corrupt is not the same answer as critical theories. God's answer to bad authority is good authority. God's answer to bad authority is good authority. Listen to how this little tiny passage in 2 Samuel describes what it's like to live under good authority. 2 Samuel 23 says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Friends, the picture is those who are under good, godly authority are people who are marked by flourishing, 
The sun shines on them. The rain gives them what they need to sprout and to grow. When people exercise authority rightly, when leaders rule with an awareness and an awe of God, when they understand that any position of authority is a gift to be stewarded for the good of others, never to exalt oneself, then the people they lead thrive. And so the answer to bad authority is not to eradicate leadership structures. They are inescapable. But rather, the answer is that we would pray for godly, competent, good, life-giving, unselfish authority. I pray that if you're in any position of authority at all, a parent, a husband, a teacher, a boss, an owner, that you would use that authority, be it there's one under you or there are hundreds, even thousands, that you would use it to cause those under you to feel the bright sun and the wonderful rain upon them. That's what your authority is for. If you misuse authority, you are lying about God. Because God always uses His authority for good. I encourage you to listen for the alternate idea that is all around us that says authority is bad and it must be undone. And instead, every time you hear it, pray for those in authority that they'd use it for good. The people in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 were not using their authority for good. And the practical result of that was, in their corruption, people were being forced into and held down by poverty. It's tragic. Now let's look on at verse 10. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Beloved, the pursuit of wealth at any cost, even at the cost of the oppression of the poor, is a fool's errand. It's a wasted life because people who love money will never be satisfied with money. It simply doesn't work. And it doesn't work for at least three reasons. And I want to show you those in this passage. The first reason is found in verse 11. Essentially, verse 11 tells us that when wealth increases, expenses increase. Those of you who are out of, out of high school, maybe even let's say you've been out of it for 10, 20, 30 years, then what do you think would happen if suddenly you fell into a lot of wealth? Well, friends you haven't spoken to since you graduated high school would suddenly be calling you up. Your phone would blow up with texts 
about how much you've been missed and let's get together and catch up. And what is that person actually wanting? They're not interested in you. They want your money. And that's what happens when wealth increases. Your expenses increase because more people gather around you to try to use you for your wealth. And furthermore, it costs more money to have more money. Do you realize that? The more you have, the more it costs you to have that. And that pushes you to try to earn even more. Now, here's the crazy reality that no one seems to talk about. Everybody in our society, except perhaps that top 1%, where most of the wealth is actually gathered in America today, everybody else, the 99%, the vast majority of the 99% spend everything they have, regardless of how much they have. And so, it doesn't really matter whether you make or $500,000. Almost certainly, you will spend everything you have. I have known people who are incredibly wealthy, who live in very, very, very large houses, driving very nice cars, going on very fancy vacations. And the appearance is They can simply pull out their card and buy anything they want and they won't feel it at all. When in reality, most of the time, people living that kind of lifestyle are also balancing what they're paying when they're paying it just like you are. Because it doesn't matter how much you make, we tend to spend every bit of it and a bit more. That's because... There is a vicious cycle that the more you have, the more it actually costs to have that, which means then you want to earn more because you're frustrated by that, which means then you're pushing even higher. And all you're doing is running on a hamster's wheel that doesn't get anywhere. Here's the bottom line. You won't be satisfied with money in any lasting way Because having more simply costs more. Enough never arrives. Now that brings us to the second reason why those who love money won't find it satisfactory. It's there in verse 12. And essentially this verse is describing a situation that might work like this. There is someone who has affluence. And if they're not careful, that affluence will lead to overindulgence. And that overindulgence then leads to worry and misery. Affluence plus overindulgence equals misery. Now, you've experienced that probably regardless of how much you have. Let's think about an annual tradition in which almost all of us experience this. It's called the Thanksgiving table. Now, even if you go to the Thanksgiving table with your comfy pants on, 
those expandable ones. What, what ends up happening? Well, your, your eyes are bigger than your tum-tum, and that food is really good. So you stuff more and more and more in until you're just absolutely miserable. There is nothing worse than the feeling of I have just gorged myself. Like I think my legs were hollow and now they're full, along with everything else. It is a terrible feeling. That is the feeling described by this verse. The feeling of I just have to lay down and moan. And somehow we forget and we do it again the next year, if not the next day with the rest of the leftovers. More money does not equate to a better life. The Bible consistently warns against the meaninglessness of putting your faith in your finances. More just causes you to gorge yourself like the Thanksgiving table. That's why verse 12 compares the sound sleep of a blue-collar worker to the worries and stress and ill health of the overindulgent. The passage is painting this picture for us that the one who sleeps on the floor of his studio apartment and ate ramen noodles for dinner may in fact experience a better life than the one who goes out for a $150 steak and wine dinner and then drives home to their mansion. The lie that we are sold all day, every day, tells us that that simply isn't true. That if you just reach that next standard of living, you will finally be happy. But the finish line is always, always, always moving. You never, ever, ever will arrive. Affluence can lead to overindulgence, and when affluence and overindulgence combine, misery is always the result. Church, relative to the rest of the world, the United States is an incredibly wealthy nation, and so examples of this abound. More wealth leads to more worry. And so, brothers and sisters, will you please hear this? More will never, ever be enough. Greed will never lead to contentment. It doesn't work. Now, the next paragraph will give us the third and final reason why those who love money will never be satisfied with money. Look with me at verse 13, please. It says, There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a, he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for all the toil that he may carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil 
Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils in the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in hunger, and sickness. Oh, I gave you hunger as a bonus. I shouldn't do that. Vexation and sickness and anger. This paragraph describes somebody who worked really hard. Now, Ecclesiastes tells us over and over and over, it's going to do so today, that work is good, that work is a gift, that work is to be enjoyed, that work is part of why you're alive. But this guy worked so much, so hard to make a particular amount of money and save it up. And he's been successful at it. And he's reached uh, a status that feels good. And yet, it wasn't enough for him. And so, one day, along comes someone to that man and says, you've done well for yourself. Good job. How would you like to do even better? And he proposed to him a certain business opportunity. We're not told what it was, but let's just say for our purposes that this would be today some kind of uh, venture capitalism or some, some kind of investment in a particular stock opportunity. And so this guy who already has a lot is told, if you will take that wealth and put it over here, then it's going to double. It could triple. It could quadruple. You'll have more than you could ever imagine. And so the man looks at what he has and says, it's not enough. I want that. And so he takes what he has and he invests it there. Now notice that this isn't an indictment on investment. That's not what's happening. But he takes all of it. That's part of what tells us that this was not motivated correctly. He takes it all and he puts it in this venture, but that venture turns out to be sour. Perhaps he bought stock that turned out to be an elaborate sham. So he stored up money in a way that was harmful to him. And then in an effort to earn even more, he spent it all and lost it all. How do we know he lost it all? Well, the passage describes it for us in a culturally specific way. It says that he's got nothing to give his son in his inheritance. Now that might not mean a lot to you and I. Because in our own day, we find ourselves worrying about, am I going to live, am I going to outlive my money? And for a lot of us, that's a real concern. But back then, one of the main goals in life was that you would pass in such a way that the wealth you have would go to your son and your legacy would carry on through him. This guy is so poor that he's got nothing to give his son. And that meant he was, culturally speaking, passing on nothing but shame. This is a sad story, but it's a dramatic example of what's always true. Because that thought, did you notice, then led the preacher of Ecclesiastes to reflect on what's true of every single one of us. Naked we were born. In other words, you came with nothing. And you and I will leave with nothing. 
So this third reason why you won't be satisfied with money is that you're going to lose it all eventually. You're going to lose it all eventually. Beloved, you brought nothing in and you will take nothing out. God created us as people who will exist forever. The scriptures say eternity is written in our hearts. Therefore, nothing as temporary as worldly treasures could ever satisfy because we can't take them with us. We were made for something more. Ecclesiastes paints a dark and stark picture of what will happen if you live expecting stuff to satisfy. The heart given over to greed has an insatiable appetite. It will always promise satisfaction with the next purchase. And so really, the reason we have the struggle that we have is not because of where we live. It's not. Certainly, our environment helps our sin to flourish. (laughs) It throws miracle grow on it. But the reason the temptation is so effective is because the problem lies not with society, but with the heart. Our hearts, apart from God, are bound up looking for other idols to satisfy. And only God can, only God does. The problem is not with houses, clothes, cars, vacations. The problem is with the heart. Take it from the preacher. Not this one. This one. The author of Ecclesiastes had more than you and I combined. Our total net worth over the course of our lives, all of us together, would not equal what the preacher was worth. This was a guy who could literally get anything he wanted from anywhere. And yet he says, it's not enough. It doesn't work. It won't satisfy. The idea that your next purchase will provide durable delight is a lie. It doesn't work. So what's the solution? Well, thankfully, this passage in Ecclesiastes is one of those texts that give us not only the problem, but also the solution. So look with me, if you would, at verses 18, 19, and 20. Here's the good news. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Now that sounds pretty great, doesn't it? To be occupied with joy such that the hard things in life don't feel as hard. Notice the glaring differences in these verses relative to all the other verses that we've studied so far together this morning. 
Let me point out just two differences. Number one, God is mentioned four times in three verses. The previous 10 verses did not say anything about God. Four times in three verses versus 10 verses without a direct reference to God. It's clear the author's making a point. We begin to turn the corner on money when we see it in relationship to our Creator. When God fills our gaze rather than the next thing we could buy, we begin to think about and experience resources in a different way. A second thing that's different is that the previous verses tended to describe wealth as something that people clamor for, to earn, to save, to spend, to get more of. And it's very much describing a people-centered view of wealth. But these verses tell us that God gives them. That principally, everything you have, you have, not because you're a hard worker or a smart investor or you came from good stock or you got the right degree, but rather, but by the benevolent hand of God that God gives. Friends, if we view the ability to work, the paycheck we get, the possessions we buy, the amount of money we have saved, if we view those things through the lens of this is something I have because of what I've done, then it will leave us always wanting more. We will turn our noses down on those who have less and we will jealously long for what the people above us who have more have. But if our perspective changes to God, thank you for the job I have. It is not perfect. But I'm not stuck on the couch. I'm doing something productive. You've given me the skills I have. And there are hard things about my work. But work is a gift. Thank you for my job. And when that check is deposited into your account, your first thought isn't, I should get more based on what I've done. It's God. Thank you that out of the dignity of work you have given me however much money that is. Thank you, God, that you provide for me out of your benevolence. And when you make purchases with that, God, thank you that you are sufficiently providing for my needs with what I have and that you even give me enough that I get to give to others. And God, thank you for this chair I'm sitting down to eat dinner on. And thank you for each bite I pray that as I taste it, I would be reminded of your goodness and your benevolence. Do you see the difference? The issue is being moved from our consumables consuming us to the Lord Jesus Christ 
to the benevolence of our Heavenly Father, taking and filling our gaze as the one who gives us all that we need. That's the big idea from this entire passage. Don't love money. Instead, enjoy God's gifts. Don't love money. Instead, enjoy God's gifts. Church, the problem isn't money. Money is neither good nor bad. The problem is the love of money. Christians are people who see God as sovereign over everything, even sovereign over all that we are given. He's the giver. And when we see Him in that way, then we see that we have joy in Him. Now, I mentioned that we would be looking today at verses uh, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And when I did so, I didn't mean we'd read them all. I meant we'd be covering the big idea that is in that section of Scripture. But I'm not going to read them. Instead, I want to show you something in the New Testament. But let me tell you why very quickly. The entire passage that we've been studying today, all the way from uh, chapter 5, verse 8, to chapter 6, verse 9, is written using a, particularly, a particular literary device. Those of you who are English nerds, you're about to geek out. It's going to be like the one Sunday in a year that that can happen. So are you ready for it? Uh, this passage was written by the author using something called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device designed to emphasize what's said in the center. And it does so by saying something in the beginning and something in the end that relate to each other. And then by saying something sort of in, if you imagine a pyramid, stepping up to step two in such a way that step two and step four also relate. So that what's said in the center at the climax is the high point, the point of emphasis in the passage. And so that means that the beginning and the end mirror each other. And the middle and uh, the, 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 the B, if you will, and uh, the second B relate. And then the center then gets the point of emphasis. The center in this passage is verse 20. And so that means that if you look at all of chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, you'll see in them the mirror of what we've already talked about. So sometime this week in your gospel community or perhaps in a, uh, a discipling relationship or maybe just with the people you live with, you could read the rest of the passage and see if you see how the text mirrors itself. But I want to end this morning very quickly by showing the relationship of this passage to Jesus Christ. And I want to take just two more minutes or so of your time. I just thought of this late last night. And so uh, would you, it won't be on the screens, but would you flip with me in your Bible over to Matthew 6, uh, verse 24. Matthew 6, verse 24. And I want to show you that Jesus agrees with everything we've talked about today. And we'll do this again very quickly. Matthew 6, verse 24. This shows us Jesus on money. It says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Jesus says, you either are going to have God or wealth on the throne of your life. And church, what I've tried today to show you is that that is not a one-time decision. The day you were converted, you came to know Christ. You were rescued from darkness into light. That is not the only day. You've got to decide who's going to sit on the throne of my heart. Friends, Christians are not people who say, Jesus is Lord, and then never find something else crawling back up there. Christians are people who recognize money keeps vying for the chief spot, and some days I say yes. And God, I see this morning that that's what's happened. And so, would you forgive me? And as I remove money from my place of lordship and set you back there, would you for the next hour be my king? That's how this works. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you'll eat or drink or your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, either snow, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, very likely the author of Ecclesiastes, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat or drink or wear? The Gentiles think, seek these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Friends, Jesus understood, understands that stuff cannot satisfy. And he saw, just like the author of Ecclesiastes, that more just leads to more anxiety. And so he's instructed us on what to do. That is to seek first the kingdom of God. That is to put God back on the throne. I hope you'll do so today. Lord, we thank you for the passage that we've studied and we pray that it would make a lasting difference in our lives. We pray you'd help us to that end and as we conclude our worship gathering this morning with a baptism, we pray that this would be a great reminder to us that, God, you change lives, and you can change even our tendency to think we find value and worth and significance in what we own. We thank you for Jack and what he's going to share with us. In Jesus' name, amen.